This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 26, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. After the attack on the Capitol that ended in five deaths and a rattled legislative branch, there is rising fear that the White House and Democratic majorities in both houses will seek new authorities to crack down on extremism in ways that would look a lot like a Patriot Act explicitly for domestic law enforcement. Cato's Patrick Eddington and Julian Sanchez comment. On Friday... Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, announced the Biden administration would take some efforts to combat what they call domestic violent extremism. The director of national intelligence will oversee a comprehensive threat assessment. The National Security Council will build capability to counter extremism and disrupt extremist networks. Uh, And federal departments will coordinate on what they call evolving threats. This is all in response to the uh, attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So to you, uh, Pat, well, what does this mean? And it, because it, it sounds to me like one of two things. One, we're not really going to do all that much, but here's the language we're going to use to make it sound like we are, or we're taking this very seriously and hold on to your rights. Uh, the latter would probably be the correct response, un- unfortunately. If we go back to the 19... 19- Uh, 50s and the Cold War era, you had a unit within the National Security Council staff that was dedicated to, quote, domestic security. And I think uh, what I also found disturbing uh, about her statements this afternoon was the involvement of the Director of National Intelligence uh, in in looking at, quote, this domestic threat. Uh, DNI was, was created and the intelligence community as a whole exists to deal with foreign threats. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot to be concerned about here going forward. You know, the, the FBI has been dealing with what I will refer to essentially as white supremacist or white nationalist type movements for a very, very, very long time. Uh, have they put the same level of effort into that as they have looking at people of color? Uh, I think the answer is no. They haven't even come close. The difficulty with, with all of this is that when we start talking about groups, that's when we begin to slide into essentially the possibility of, of mass surveillance, uh, mass suppression of rights, et cetera, et cetera. I was really very angry, frankly, when I saw Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, tweet yesterday, something to the effect about uh, basically trying to find a way to shut down the speech, effectively shut down the speech uh, of some of these folks. And, you know, I guess she needs a refresher on Brandenburg v. Ohio because the Supreme Court, you know, ruled on that problem over 50 years ago. Um, there's a lot of speech that goes on that I don't like that probably everybody listening to this podcast doesn't necessarily like, but, you know, we have a first amendment for a reason. And I think at the end of the day, we have to realize that what happened on January the 6th and everything that led up to it is fundamentally a political and a social problem. And it's going to take, uh, in my view, a non-securitized approach uh, to that problem to really address it. And I do think in in his inauguration day speech, the president was trying to do that. But this announcement today really kind of runs counter to that, in my judgment. Although I'd add, you know, uh, uh, to balance that, at least perhaps, uh, Rashida Tlaib and and several of her colleagues uh, did send a a letter urging against uh, an expansion of the national security state or surveillance authorities uh, in response to uh, that attack. And I think that's 
you know, maybe the critical thing. I think we've seen calls not just for uh, you know, task forces or prioritizing uh, uh, domestic uh, terror groups or, or white nationalist groups, but also calls to start uh, shifting the uh, foreign-aimed international terrorism uh, post-9-11 approach uh, to domestic adversaries, sort of bringing bringing the war on terror home even even to a greater extent, and so uh, it was somewhat heartening to see some opposition to that. I think uh, we saw an outpouring of uh, think pieces in the aftermath of the the riots at the Capitol on the sixth, saying, "Well, what we really need now is a new domestic terror charge," as though uh, you know somehow we were unable to uh, you know prosecute people who you know invade. Uh, government property and and destroy property and threaten people um, without a specific piece of legislation calling it domestic terrorism as opposed to merely you know trespassing vandalism assault uh, and other uh, you know other other criminal activities and you know I think there's a, a bit of a pattern uh, that we saw in the immediate aftermath of 9/11 and as maybe rearing its head again now which is institutional failures and bureaucratic failures are tacitly excused by the demand for new authorities. So they say, well, we need new surveillance authorities. We need a new organization. And, you know, either explicitly or implicitly, what they're saying is we have failed because you did not give us enough power and not because, you know, our institutionals are, institutions are in various ways dysfunctional and we had the authority we needed and we simply failed. The demand for new authority is a way of excusing the failure to appropriately use the authorities you already had. And so I think you should, you should listen to it, uh, it through that, well, listen to it through that lens, listen to it through that filter, view it through that lens. Uh, when you hear people saying things like, this shows we need new domestic terror legislation. Government failed, therefore give us more government. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that pretty well, I think, sums up where we're going right now. This is from the letter uh, while we are not necessarily opposed to reforms to address the law enforcement and intelligence community's inability or unwillingness to seriously confront domestic white nationalist violence, we firmly believe that the national security and surveillance powers of the U.S. government are already too broad, undefined, and unaccountable to the people. To further degrade those rights and liberties in reaction to this attack would undermine our democracy at a time when we must join together to defend it with all of our collective might. While many may find comfort in increased national security powers, in the wake of this attack, we must emphasize that we have been here before and we have seen where that road leads. Our history is littered with examples of initiatives sold as being necessary to fight extremism that quickly devolve into tools used for the mass violation of the human and civil rights of the American people. And then they detail the House Un-American Activities Committee, the Federal Bureau of Investigation's COINTEL Pro. Uh, program, the USA Patriot Act, and the FBI's Assessment Authority and Operation Iron Fist. So um, in, in looking at this, if this is something the White House is taking seriously, and this is signed by uh, uh, multiple members of Congress, Earl Blumenauer, Ro Khanna, Barbara Lee, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, uh, and Ayanna Presley, among others, um, Republicans were gung-ho for the Patriot Act. Um, and I think that that occurred sort of very quickly in the wake of 9-11. This was, if not a day after, just days after uh, 9-11. How do we slow this kind of thing down? I mean, this seems like an attempt to slow it down and say, hey, let's think about this and uh, not 
overturn these authorities, which are many, many of which are unnecessary already against Americans explicitly. I think the biggest problem that I worry about is that, you know, Washington remains very tribal. And, and so, you know, folks can put their names on letters and, you know, I helped to write a lot of those for, for my boss, um, back in the day when I worked on the Hill. Uh, but Mr. Biden is trying to govern with razor thin margins, basically in both chambers, uh, in a country that is clearly very polarized and divided. And I think Democrats are going to rally around Biden. Uh, in terms of what he wants to do. The Progressive Caucus with folks like AOC and uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and now Cory Bush uh, from my home state of Missouri uh, may be there uh, in the breach to try to prevent some of this stuff. Uh, but I I really do fear that uh, when push comes to shove, if the administration were to actually promulgate some kind of legislation uh, that we would find objectionable, that there may end up being a little bit more support for it than any of us, you know, would really be comfortable with. So this comes down to, you know, major figures uh, in in the Senate on the Democratic side uh, standing up. It can't just be Ron Wyden. Uh, you know, we we need more folks than that. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Let me be very uh, pointed here. What has Ron Wyden said in the wake of the attack on the Capitol? I have not actually gone to his website or looked very closely at his, his Twitter feed thus far. Uh, what I do know is that he remains very seized of a concern about the ability of federal law enforcement to buy data from companies like Twitter uh, and the others that give law enforcement the ability to essentially engage in tracking people without actually getting a warrant. And I, and I think a lot of other folks are kind of waking up essentially to that reality. Uh, but I haven't seen, uh, to be fair to him, I, I have, I have not reviewed, uh, his website, press releases, et cetera, to see if he has actually come out and said flat out, we cannot have a so-called domestic terrorism law. Julian, what infrastructure exists already that, uh, president Biden might want to try to strengthen or expand to deal with uh, what they call uh, violent domestic extremists. Well, you know, frankly, the the existing law enforcement infrastructure. Um, there's, I, I just don't think there's a, a an obvious reason that this needs to be treated differently from, um, you know, any other group that may commit, uh, you know, violent acts that we deal with through right existing investigatory powers of agencies like the FBI when necessary or, uh, or state agencies. Um, but we have seen, uh, proposals to, uh, that, you know, that frankly, uh, I think uh, perhaps this is excessively cynical may not do a lot of good, but have the benefit of acting as a kind of placebo. Um, there's a bill already, uh, floated by, uh, representative Schneier and Senator Durbin that is, Build as a as domestic terror legislation, but doesn't really create new uh, authorities. Uh, it codifies an existing sort of information sharing task force between the agencies. And as Pat said, I think uh, you know to the extent you're looping in uh, intelligence to this, that's not necessarily a great sign. Uh, but fundamentally, it's about information sharing and about uh, prioritizing uh, the most serious threats and. Uh, requiring a report to Congress on the state of, uh, of domestic terror threats. And that's, that's aimed, I think, significantly at 
the sense that uh, to date, federal law enforcement, certainly state and federal law enforcement, um, have uh, perhaps not been prioritizing the most serious actual threats. They've been very interested in, uh, you know, looking at, for example, what they call black identity extremists and groups like BLM, um, and you know, maybe treating that as uh, as a disproportionate threat relative to uh, uh, domestic white nationalist groups, um, which you know may be more likely to uh, raise hackles uh, because of their proximity to more mainstream political groups. Um, this bill, I don't know that it's necessary. Um, but to the extent that it allows them to say, well, we've done something, uh, may just insofar as it doesn't do these more harmful things, um, again, be preferable as a placebo. Uh, you know, you get the sense that I think members of Congress sort of recognize that the underlying problem here is not, frankly, a need for new legislation, um, but that uh, there's a desire to say, you know, look what we're doing. We have done something in response to this attack. We're not just, uh, uh, you know, sitting on our hands here. Um, and so in, in some sense, you may need something to give them to say, look what we did. Uh, and to the extent that they can, they have something to do that is at least not particularly harmful. Um, that may to some extent sort of quench the appetite for, uh, more harmful measures. All right. Uh, Pat, the, Capital attackers on January 6th, many of them did law enforcement an enormous favor. <laughs> um, they live streamed themselves. They took many photos. Yeah. Uh, uh, one state representative from West Virginia, upon bursting into the Capitol, yelled his name and then said, is in the Capitol. <laughs> uh, so uh, should what should law enforcement do with that information? That seemed that. It, it, this case seems like a bunch of people who do not understand that they all committed violent felonies. So what we have here are what I like to refer to as the stupid criminals, right? These are the people who went and, and as you just indicated, uh, videoed themselves committing multiple federal felonies uh, on the grounds of the Capitol, uh, in, including, of course, major acts uh, of, of vandalism, uh, property destruction, theft of, uh, in the case of Speaker Pelosi, apparently her, her computer by one particular individual. In any event, they, they broadcast literally to the world what they were doing. Uh, and because they did that, it makes it incredibly easy for law enforcement to grab this stuff. And of course, in, in the case of some of these folks, they've been using uh, automatic license plate reader data um, down the line. Right. I mean, just anything that essentially winds up being publicly available, uh, they've made that part of the of the bureau's job, you know, very, very easy in that respect. I'll tell you uh, just bluntly, we got very lucky on January the 6th, and that is because we had essentially a bunch of yahoos, a mob uh, with really limited organization show up. What's getting attention now from uh, some members of the press, and this was very prominently featured by NPR late yesterday is the fact that of the, you know, 70 plus people that have been arrested so far, and it may be closer to 80 or 90 by now, but about one in five uh, have prior military service. And that compares to about a 7% uh, overall representation in the U.S. population. And so what I fear, what I'm very concerned about, 
is that now we will see essentially an effort on the part of law enforcement to go to the Defense Manpower Data Center at the Pentagon and say, we want the names of everybody who's now prior service. We especially want the names of people with uh, knowledge of explosives. We want the names of all former special operations folks. Uh, and that they will begin to essentially engage in or try to engage in a pattern matching operation uh, where they begin to kind of put these these folks on a list and, and maybe run it against additional data that they have out there. That's what I worry about. Um, I'm not downplaying the fact that uh, that we had the incident, not for a single minute. It was clearly an act of insurrection. But I think it would it would be a real mistake to just automatically assume that anybody with prior military service is necessarily, you know, a a threat. Uh, to their neighbors uh, or to the existing constitutional order. But I, I fear that at least in some quarters and very likely on the left, political left, uh, we're going to see some some uh, flames be fanned here, at least rhetorically and, and maybe more to kind of go down that road. But there's no question that the FBI, <clears throat> working with their state and local law enforcement partners, have an enormous amount of data that that's available to them to basically go after the, the folks that have been surfaced. I will tell you that it's not these people that worry me. The people that would worry me would be more like Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols. And even though those guys, uh, you know, made some noise, published some newspaper articles, all the rest of that, their overall operational security in building that bomb that destroyed the building in Oklahoma City in 1995 was pretty damn good. And it's people that are really dedicated revolutionaries. Um, people that understand how to maintain operational security. And that, that's not the three percenters. That's not the Oath Keepers. These clowns show up at state capitals. These guys that tried to put together this plot to capture and potentially kill uh, Michigan Governor, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, they showed up at state capitol over the summer, which is one reason why law enforcement was able to figure out who they were. It's the ones that understand how to maintain operational security that that know how to to maintain a, a genuine cell, that's what worries me. And I think that's really where law enforcement ought to be spending their time and their energy, frankly. You no, know, I'd say one thing that's clear from the uh sort of the aftermath of the right in the Capitol is that you have uh, a mixture of a lot of people who were uh you know essentially engaged in in trespassing and perhaps not anything much more serious than that. Um some people who engaged in vandalism, um, a few people who ended up committing violence against uh, law enforcement officers, and then um, a, a relatively small number of people who had actual designs on doing serious harm, potentially uh, attacking uh, members of Congress or Mike Pence. Uh, and you know, on the one hand, uh, the you know some of these people are in effect acting as sort of useful idiots, giving cover to the ones with more malign intentions. Um, uh, but uh, it's, I think, important to, uh, you know, distinguish between people who, you know, indeed, maybe committed a crime of trespassing and should face some penalty for it, um, and the ones who did actual damage. Um, I think it is probably not in the interest of people who believe in, um, you know, a robust right of protest to conflate those things in a way that says, um, you know, everyone present at a protest, even if they may be committing some offense um, that amounts to civil disobedience, is effectively guilty of the worst action, um, even rhetorically, you know, we're discussing this in, in, in affidavits, right, is guilty of the worst thing someone present did. Um, I, I, one of the things that makes it difficult is that, um, 
it's sometimes hard to assess the guilt if you have a group of people uh, going in and some of them are doing serious harm. I mean, killing a, a police officer in one case. Um, and others are in some sense helping by being part of that crowd, even if they don't uh, commit the action themselves. But when you look at their individual conduct, uh, it, it's hard to find something more serious than effectively trespassing to charge. Um, you know, in the, in the long term, I think it's it's in our interest to uh, to keep those things distinct. I think um, a, a lot of the the kinds of proposals we're hearing for treating some of these things as as you know complicity with domestic terrorism are very easily turned on um, anyone else participating in a protest where you know a window gets broken. Um, that's the sort of thing that happens in protests all the time. Uh, and you know, I think there is a a we can be appropriately and, and justly outraged at what happened on the sixth. Um, but also want to be prudent in the way we react in a way that does not chill legitimate protest, uh, does not say um, if anyone commits a crime, everyone in you know within a, a, a hundred foot radius uh, is 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 implicated in that. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Patrick Eddington is a research fellow at Cato. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>